My name is Jacob Burrows, and I don't know anything about history. But I do know what you're about to listen to, which is something you don't know because it's not season three of Real History. It's a spin-off. It's a special feature. It's uh, something we did between seasons. More specifically, Mark and Michael did it. I'm not in this one. It's something experimental, so do let us know what you think, maybe in a tweet at real underscore history. If you don't recall, in the season two finale, we did say we'd drop a few of these outside the usual format episodes, but there's probably only going to be like one or two of these because I am happy to say we have the majority of season three recorded and we can't wait to start releasing it. We're racing to finish the last episodes, so I know this is early from your perspective, but I do want to ask if you have any questions or topics you'd like to see discussed in our season three finale, do send those along uh, promptly in a tweet at real underscore history or email us at shows what you know show at gmail.com. Anyway, that's all from me. I'll hand you over to our friends who will tell you all about the top five schemers throughout all of history. Enjoy. Welcome to History Top 5, a real history spin-off. In this show, we pick a top five list of any subject from history, from diabolical villains to history's most epic fails. My name's Mark, and today I'm joined, as always, by Michael. Um, in, our, in our episode today, we're discussing what the top five schemers in European history are. So, Michael... Why don't you uh, fill us in on what you what you think what you mean by schemers or what we mean by schemers? Oh well, where to start? These people are this often the scum of the universe, you know, to put it lightly. Uh, <laughs> they they kind of they they use their cunning, their kind of devilish uh, intelligence uh, to undermine and manipulate those around them to get. Uh, and to achieve their own ends. So looking into this, like we could have picked a hundred schemers, but like because top five. It was tough to narrow it down, right? It was tough to narrow down to, to Very on. much so, yeah. And, you know, it kind of makes you sick to your stomach, a lot of the stuff these guys get up to. So it's just not good for your health <laughs> in general. No, so five was enough. Five was enough, I think, I, this time I, around. I think yeah. it's sort of, sort of important to say, like with schemers, what we're talking about is sort of, not necessarily the most famous individuals in history, although some of them are pretty famous, obviously, but they're sort of often the power behind the power or sort of the the devious yeah. person who's behind the front man kind of thing. It's not the necessarily... Power behind the throne. The Dominic yeah, coming yeah, exactly. until recently to the Boris Johnson. Yes, yeah, exactly. That type of character. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Indeed. So who have, you, who have we picked first? Who have you gone for? Who's your first pick? Well... Simply because this guy has always fascinated me. So I thought I'd start off with Rasputin. Ah, uh, yes. So, the Mad Monk. The Mad Monk, the Russian Mad Monk. And the reason I've, I suppose I've gone for this guy is because he had such an unlikely path to power that you could never have guessed in a hundred years that this guy would have even left his village, let alone take control of the, the Russian Empire. <laughs> uh, just before its fall, you know. So, um, so I, I, suppose, I suppose, I suppose before before we just jump into it, maybe just give us a a one liner on uh, for anyone who's not familiar at all with Rasputin. Who like who is the guy? Why is he? Why is he famous? Well, or his very name, his very name, Rasputin. It means the debauched one. 
So, you know, <laughs> good start. Good start. I think, yeah, I think that'd give you, a, if we could just leave it at that, really, if you want to <laughs> move on to the next one. But um, <laughs> he divided opinion. For example, Tsar Nicholas of Russia, so this was in the early, uh, early 20th century, he called him a good religious, simple Russian device of the people. <laughs> But wow. others, well, had less kind term uh, names for him. So, um, well, I suppose a little bit about him. Uh, he was born to a very poor background um, in rural Russia in a place called Pokrovsky. I think I got that right. Um, yes. Well, I'm not going to be correct. So. This is it. So he would have been steeped in the Russian Orthodox Church from a, a young age, which would have been typical at the time. And he would have eventually so joined this is a, the monastery. This is a, uh, this is a harsh Eastern Christian upbringing, right? This is what we're in the Russian Empire. This is what we're talking about. Very much so, and very mystical. And uh, right. he would have inherited a lot of the stuff that he found in Orthodox religion. He would have brought into his own pseudo religion later, which we can go into <laughs> a little bit about if you like. But um, he, yeah, he joined a monastery, but he never actually became an official monk. Um, he basically through many years he developed this weird really weird doctrine which basically said that you were to you should exhaust yourself from excessive debauchery and sin as a way <laughs> of bringing yourself closer to god so basically so do a, everything a slightly uh, a slightly different method of um bringing yourself closer so like when we're comparing them to like maybe the the monks in the, in the catholic west who are like abstemious or allegedly abstemious and they live on these islands on their own and they don't you know they don't engage in any of this kind of pomp he was the exact opposite he said just completely outdo yourself with he, yeah, he, he'd be more at home it'd be kind of more at home in a charles manson 1970s <laughs> california kind of setup more than you know imperial russia but you know maybe right. he was ahead of the game you know um but he was i suppose to sum him up he was like a self-proclaimed holy man um, mm. So he traveled all around Russia um, and his big thing was that he claimed to be able to heal people and as well as that, of course, predict the future, you know, right. uh, you know, he didn't predict his own death, which would lead me to think his powers of prediction aren't that all that they're all made out to be. But look, yeah. it's neither here nor there, you know, um, but he was kind of his big thing was his charisma. He, he had a way of drawing people in. Uh, he had these magnetic kind of eyes that we kind of got lost in and he would hypnotize you. And he, he used hypnotizing as a method to heal people as well. So this guy knew how mm. to manipulate your mind, which is a great trait in a in a right. schemer, as we'll see. Yeah. Um, Definitely something we're, we're going to have in common, I think, is, is that, that kind of charisma to charm people, right? This is it. And people forgive a lot of to people who are charming in general you know yeah, uh sure. so it's a, a, a you'll see that in work you'll see that in your own life every day of the week you know <laughs> um but i suppose his big the big thing was in 1908 he had made his way to saint petersburg where the um the russian throne was and he kind of won favor unexpectedly with the royal family because the thing about the russian imperial royal family is that it had a secret and the secret was that the only mere heir to the throne, he was a hemophiliac. And so he was kind of constantly ill and having 
serious bouts of illness. And mm. obviously the Russian monarchy wanted to kind of convey strength and be able to say that this Romanov dynasty will continue for another 300 years. So the last thing they wanted yeah. was... So I was just I was just going to say this is just to just to add a little bit of a flavor to the the Romanov dynasty. This is a long-standing European dynasty, right? You mentioned three hundred years, so they're sort of long entrenched in power and almost mythical and religious in their in their sway over the people, right? So it's this idea that oh, the only almost heir would like be God. ill. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So the the idea that the only heir to this family would be ill. Was it was a serious danger? It was a serious threat to the stability of uh, yeah, politics in like, Russia, right? A bit short term thinking, like they did have four perfectly <laughs> healthy older daughters, you know, uh, who would yeah. have been probably done a fine job as a queen. Like it's not like Catherine the Great hadn't been a great well, they couldn't have done leader a, yeah, exactly, of Russia. Yeah, they couldn't have done you know? a worse job, could they? You know what I mean? <laughs> no, but anyway, they they hedged all their bets on their youngest son. Um, and what ex- what happened? Uh, the way that basically Rasputin needled his way into in this such an unspe- unexpected way into the royal household was he uh, he basically was able to heal or ease the child's pain when he was having these very bout these bad bouts of illness. He was able to sort of hypnotize the child and calm him, and in the parents' eyes, stop the bleeding. You know, so. Over these years, he became almost essential to them, and he would prophesize with Nicholas the Tsar that he was the key to securing the dynasty, uh, because as long as he was around, the prince, the young prince, would grow healthy and strong ah, and okay, secure the dynasty. Okay. You know, um, but whilst he was pretending to be this lovely, wholesome, healing monk, uh, outside he was acting as the most lecherous scumbag imaginable <laughs> you know um so like he and he became infamous in russia and the, the the romanov dynasty became so unpopular because people rightly thought that this monk had this corrupt monk had um, a massive influence over the state mm. and like for example he he would claim that his body had healing powers to seduce women you know well, <laughs> so that if they slept with him, then they would be healed of all these whatever illnesses obviously, they had. I mean, obvi- obviously, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, he's and, a holy man after all. You know? Yeah, but he did uh, like awful, awful stuff and he became infamous. And eventually he was expelled from the Romanov household. They were told like, oh, we can't keep you here. You're too dodgy. And he mm. kind of just snuck away because he knew they'd call him back and he he was right a few months later he was called back to court because they knew he was needed to secure the son and heir you know um so but, i guess he knew he'd be called back just because he knew there was an inherent fear that if he's not there basically the the succession was under threat essentially is what you're saying right? and this was even more important because the first world war had started and russia was playing a massive part in that and of in course. around 1915 uh, Tsar Nicholas, as head of the Russian Imperial Army, he went to the front. And so the only two people left back running the Russian government, because the, the parliament had no power, the Duma, it was very weakened. The, yeah. the people actually running it were the Queen, who was of German descent. So the Russian people naturally didn't trust her because they were at war with Germany. Of course. They're at war and with Germany, yeah. This is it. And Rasputin. And 
during this year of 1915, this was kind of the pinnacle of Rasputin's power and control of Russia. And like him and Alexandra, the, who was the queen, they made disastrous decisions based on prayer and, you know, <laughs> saying that they had messages from God. Uh, so to give an example of the madness here that, that and deviousness of all this is during that year where Nicholas was at the front, uh, hit, uh, Alexandra and Rasputin connived to sack four prime ministers, five interior ministers, five agricultural and three foreign and war and transport ministers in one year. So people, crazy. the people of, yeah, the people of Russia, it was already, there was bread riots, there was demands for civil rights, there was all this big tinderbox going on outside. And Rasputin, yeah. and they believed that Russia was being controlled by this evil force, what they called a, a German Rasput, uh, Rasputin clique that was running the, the wow. government, you know? So yeah. to put it in context, like the, the, the state of Russia at this point, we're talking about World War One, and Russia is the largest country in Europe by population. But And and you would sort of expect that it, because of that, it has the military force to sort of just kind of plow through as they do in World War Two. But it's very different to that, right? It's still quite agrarian and it's kind of, it's not quite as industrialized as its, as its European counterparts. It's a monarchy under immense stress because of these outside forces, but as well as what's yeah. going on inside Russia, is it? Yeah, yeah, basically. So I'm like, it, this is a monarchy unlike what we recognize today. It's one that has real authoritarian power. Oh, yeah. But it's, it's, the, it, but it's really at the yeah. end of an era, right? Yeah, Russia is slowly industrializing. Uh, mm -hmm. industrializing. Uh, the arm, there's immense inequality in the country. Like it's not that long ago, really, that since serfdom or, or what you would call is slavery or indentured slavery was right. still legal in Russia. So Russia is playing a lot of catch up. Its army is massive, but it's slow and mo it takes a long time to mobilize. And that's a, one of their major problems, you know. Um, mm. But anyway, this was all coming to a head. And I suppose one of the most interesting things about Rasputin is the way that he was actually killed. Uh, so, <laughs> and, you know, for such a diabolical, devilish character, you know, who spent his whole life manipulating people, like his death is even more extraordinary. And it kind of gives you a shiver and you think maybe he was a right. proper mystic or something, you know? Right, so, right, right. Basically, like a, a group of kind of right-wing noblemen they were led by Prince Yusupov. This got into their head that we got to get rid of this mad monk who's running Russia. We got to take control here. We can't afford this bullshit anymore. So they invited him to a lovely party. And I Rasputin do. turned up, yeah, loved a drink. So Rasputin sat down. They gave him cakes and wine uh, laced with cyanide. And they didn't put enough cyanide for to kill one man. They put four times as much cyanide. <laughs> but just to be sure they really got this guy. This is it. But he just kind of sat there and got a bit sleepy. So they were like, wow. right, what? We can't kill this guy. And they were pretending to have this party, you know, all around the house and all that. And so eventually they went, well, look, we're going, we've already poisoned him. We're going to have to shoot him. So one of them gets up, they shoot him. <laughs> He's still, they think he's down, but he gets up screaming and foaming at the mouth. Okay. Then, <laughs> and this, there's actually testimony about this. That's, that's why there's actually witnesses right. to this. Uh, right, and then right. they, beat, they beat him with an iron bar. 
<laughs> and he still wasn't dead. So then they put him in a sack, weighted it down, and threw him in a frozen canal. And that did eventually Great. kill him. <laughs> Great. Yeah, like half of any of those things would kill any of us, you know? <laughs> exactly. So that was kind of the removal of Rasputin. But I definitely think, uh, and I hope you agree, Mark, that he deserves to be on the top five list. Yeah, he he definitely sounds like someone who's earned his earned his spot on the list there. All right, that's it. I mean, going from essentially nothing to becoming the, the the most dominant person in the Russian Empire is not bad going, right? And just but just by and then ending up in a frozen canal. For yeah, your troubles. A good, a good end. A good end. No wonder he's uh, his his infamy is sort of uh, sort of lived on. Um, <laughs> on that note, I'll go for my first pick. Um, this is slightly controversial. Go for it. I'm I looking forward to this one. Yeah, in, in some ways, I, I think this guy doesn't deserve the reputation, but in another way, I think he sort of has to be on there for just for cultural reasons. So I have gone for Machiavelli, who um, ah, is course. probably yeah. famous just even for the, his name, this, you know, something being described as Machiavellian. People would describe that as sort of sort of uh, conniving and, you know, real politic and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so I'll, 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 I, was I guess once, I'll just... Uh, a, bit off, a bit off topic, but I was once at a party and a guy described my friend as Machiavellian. <laughs> and he was he was delighted. He was delighted because yeah, he didn't well, know what say, it meant. Uh, uh, okay. Well, I was going to say... He like, thought it meant really instance, cool. Yeah. Well, I mean, in some instances, you're kind of... It can be a compliment. Like, you know, if, if, you, if you've if you used your, your, your powers for good, I suppose, it could be used... Uh, it could be That's a, true. a compliment. Like, but a, I think, like a Cicero or something like that, yeah. Exactly, right, exactly. So, um, and I, I'll actually get into that a little bit in, in a minute, but I just, I thought I'd, what I'd do is i just sort of set the scene. So who was he, where, where was he based? So Mac- Machiavelli was a, a um, Renaissance era figure. So he's really, really famous for having written this book called The Prince. And The Prince is kind of wrongly, in my view anyway, wrongly regarded as this sort of almost a how-to um book on how to become an autocratic ruler and what you do once you've got power how you manipulate power how you maintain and how you organize the society how you organize the military and all that kind of stuff rupert um, murdoch that, has it on his desk i believe 100 percent, yeah I, like it's one of and this is why i've put him on the list because like every great schemer in history will have read the prince you know and i'm sure i'm sure uh i'm sure um rasputin will have been reasonably familiar with uh, machiavelli but it's actually well, I'll get to that in a minute, but that's why he's he's made the he's made the uh, the the list for me. But what who he was basically is he was a political scientist and a philosopher. Um, he lived in the Florentine Republic, so that's we're talking about an era of uh, time in Europe where Italy is not a unified country. Lots of the major cities that you're aware of, like Florence and Milan, Rome, uh, Naples, and so on, they're all di- different separate political entities with their own governments and their own style of governments and their own power politics at play. It's a very, very precarious time in history because Italy is sort of surrounded by superpowers. It's got France to the West, which is the dominant power in Europe at the time. And um, Machiavelli is a guy who just through force of personality and his speaking ability and his charm sort of works his way into the Florentine government and essentially onto the war council. Um, and what he basically does is he he as a diplomat he sort of um, helps Florence kind of weather this this 
tremendously upheaval, uh, like uh, this tremendous upheaval when when um, Italy itself is invaded by France. It's then also invaded by Spain. It's also invaded by the Germans under the name of the Holy Roman Empire. And these this city state that Florence is, it's like this old. It fancies itself like the old Roman Republic, you know. So it's this kind of little city that's trying to weather the the tumult of, of everything that's going on in uh, in Italy. And in the middle of that, you have Machiavelli. Um, it's famous, of course, for the family at the time, who were great patrons and, and leaders uh, of Florence, the Medici family. Um, oh yeah, they but big books there, yeah. Yeah, the big books, the big the bank, the bankers, like you know who who and who they are basically is their family of people who essentially take control of the Republic of Florence just through their own scheming and and really their wealth. They sort of buy their way into power. Um, but Machiavelli is somebody who runs a fail of the Medici's. Um, and there is a point uh, in 1494 where the Medici's are actually exiled. The, the, their political enemies get the upper hand, and they 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 sort of they sort of throw out um, they throw out the Medici family. And at that time, uh, Machiavelli is quite a is still quite influential, and he's sort of it's said that he was manipulating their political enemies against them, you know, to try and get them out and whatever. But I mean, th- there's some of the schemes he came up with, like he had this idea <laughs> where he had, he had this idea where he approached uh, Da Vinci, right? The famous Da Vinci. And his idea was that they were going to somehow divert a river right? <laughs> to give Florence access to the sea. And at the same time, drive the r- river away from a competing city called Pisa. And the idea being that Florence would then control the port. And because it had Did direct access that- to the sea, did they think that Pisa wouldn't notice? Yeah, do you know, it's a crazy idea. Like, obviously, this didn't work, you know, and maybe Da Vinci was like, okay, look, I'm going to go and do a few paintings here. Well, it was a good idea, but it didn't work, you know? Yeah. But uh, <laughs> this is the kind of scale that the guy's thinking on. Like, it's just this crazy idea. You're talking about the, the you know, the, the 1400s, and he's like, right, well, just divert the river. It'll be fine. Like, how? How are you going to do that, you know? But um, he, he was a guy who, who was sort of has a reputation that maybe he doesn't deserve he, he was actually a guy who loved republicanism so he, he was a, and when i say republicanism i mean in the classical sense he was a uh he was massively fond of the roman republic so um not unlike yourself he was a big 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 fan of cicero you know so he yeah. loved the, the idea of the of the the elected senate and he he wrote a series of books which are called discourses on livy and it's on the early history of rome and he basically tries to establish why did Rome succeed, and it's a it's a it's a, ser- a series of of like sort of essays on it, and where he describes the politics in Rome, and he 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 reckons that the study of the past is a guide to the future essentially, and he uses some of the ideas in that. Uh, he's got some good one liners, like I think. Mark. Oh, cracking one liner! No, he's the he's the king of the one liner. Like, I mean, the prince, the, the the book he writes later on, it's just it's it's almost just a series of one. It's only. So it's very short little volumes, less than two hundred pages, but it's just sort of one liner after one liner after one liner. Um, but he 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 was a proponent of the idea of a citizen militia, and he said that's why Rome became so successful in ancient times. Whereas at the time he lived in, all of the city states in Italy were fabulously wealthy, and they relied on um, mercenary armies, yeah, which would yeah. sometimes just change sides in the middle of a Mark. battle you know you just kind of walk up to the line and so did they not know that. about the punic wars that didn't work for Carthage, you know yeah Jesus you know lad. this is my point pick up the book know, this is my yeah. point you know but uh fortunately they weren't all they weren't all as uh they weren't all as, as uh well read as machiavelli essentially basically what, what what happens to him though is um 1513 
the Medici's come back and there's a coup and they overthrow the Florentine government and establish themselves back in power and he gets he gets arrested Machiavelli because they think no this guy's too dangerous like you know he's he's the kind of fellow who can whip up a crowd but just mm. just through talk and he might be able to galvanize their political enemies so they they um they arrest him and uh, they interrogate him thinking that he was behind their original exile but he convinces them that he wasn't uh, now whether or not he was sort of open for debate I think but they essentially they exile him and while he's exiled he writes this book the prince and the the sort of the theory is that he is sort of writing this book as a blueprint for the medici family to show them how to control the state and he's like look this is how you manipulate the the, the body politic this is how you manipulate the people this is how you manipulate the church this is what you should do with the army all of these kinds of things so he has this reputation as being this really really dangerous character because he's a he's a demagogue but some people think that he's it, it's it's actually written sort of ironically and and he's 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 not he's pointing out the, the flaws maybe yeah exactly he's not saying to the medicis you should do this he's saying this is the this is the the fragility of the thing that you hold here so you know res- respect the people kind of thing you know so it's it's an interesting sort of uh, so you're a fan mark would that be right yeah, I, I just yeah, I just think he's a fascinating. I think he's one of these really misunderstood characters in history, and I'll tell you why I think he's misunderstood. The prince was banned. This book that he wrote was banned by the church. And must the church have been regarded good, him as a, uh, right, exactly right. So the church regarded him as this extremely dangerous, uh, dangerous man. And I think the ultimate message of the 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 book, the prince, is that he, what he's basically saying is, you can justify some of this stuff that you would do as a dictator like they did in ancient Rome, because desperate times call for desperate measures. But one man rule is never going to be as good as the Republic, because you'll never have the, the you'll never have a plurality of ideas. And that's sort of what he's mm-hmm. saying. And the church didn't like that. It was just, it, they saw it as a sort of an undermining kind of idea and that people might start questioning them. And that's why they banned it. And because of that, the term Machiavellian has, be, has developed a, a sort of a negative connotation in history, which, you know, Maybe it's slowly maybe it's being, maybe it's slowly uh, having its uh, reputation reevaluated. Hopefully, you know. Yeah. So he's made my list. He's made the list for us. I think today, in my opinion, on the basis that he managed to survive as an enemy of the Medici's. He managed to write a book that was so incendiary that the church had to ban it, and he's got to a situation where his his reputation is turned by being perceived as too dangerous by the Catholic Church. So. If nothing else, I think that deserves a spot. Did he get excommunicated? That's a big test for us. Whether whether you're I a actually, real schemer, I I actually don't know if he did. I, I didn't. I didn't actually look into that. But I, I imagine if he didn't, he wasn't too far off it. You know, <laughs> he, he probably wouldn't Easy have been overly day, disappointed. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, you can't imagine he'd be. He'd hate it too much. You know. You'd imagine it's so, a bit like us getting a you get us getting a big unexpected bill in the post, you know. Back then, you just yeah, got an exactly. excommunication <laughs> by via via pigeon, you know. Yeah. So, who have you well, got? No, next? I think that, I think he was a good he was a good pick, Mark. Yeah, I'd agree with you, Machiavelli. So we've had Rasputin, we've had Machiavelli. Um, I suppose one guy he's he's not a big name. But he's immensely fascinating character. Um, his name okay. is Talleyrand for short, but Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigord would be his full oh, title. Oh, very good. Okay. 
Um, okay. Now, students of, say, American revolutionary history might have heard his name pop up a few times. And uh, if you've heard, if you've ever studied or looked into the Napoleonic Wars, he's sort of the, he's the career diplomat that's always at the table and he's always got a finger in every single pie. And he's also I got think, his other finger in your pocket, stealing your money. So he's, uh, <laughs> yeah, this guy is another level of devious, you know? I might be right in saying, no, I, I, I could be wrong, but I might be right in saying a, a TV series that I referenced on our uh, other podcast, Real History, available now on all good podcasters. Um, a TV show I referenced on that was called John Adams, and it's sort of about the American Revolution. I think Talleyrand is in an episode of that where he has a sort of a face-to-face with Washington and it doesn't go very well. Because um, I remember this really, really, really good line where he, Talleyrand is trying to get Washington to, to back the French Revolution and Washington is like, no, no, we're going to stay neutral. And Talleyrand, you know, is kind of saying, well, you will hear me speak again, sir. And when you do, my voice will be millions and you will obey. And, you know, all the Americans are like Ooh. horrified at this at this brave Frenchman <laughs> in this room surrounded by, you know, Jefferson and Washington and, you know, all of these kinds of guys. But, yeah, I think I think that was Talleyrand or supposed to be him anyway. Yeah, like, so the thing with this guy was he was a charming rogue. So Napoleon, when he was in Napoleon's good books, Napoleon called him the king of European conversation, you know, <laughs> um, which is a pretty good compliment, especially from Napoleon. Because Napoleon, yeah, he was bad. pretty good at the, the one-liners too. And, you know, he was well known for his charm as well, you know. Uh, so mm. this guy had definitely... I de- this is only a brief overview of him but uh, I definitely recommend sure. looking into him uh, because yeah, he, he ticks all the boxes for schemers um, so I suppose if you want to l- know a little bit about him he, he kind of was born in 1754 he was French obviously and he kind of was born into noble heritage so at this time it was ancien regime france so you still had it was pre-revolution and the way to power was still patronage through the church so what a common trait with this guy talleyrand is that he always goes with the wind and he can always predict which way (laughs) the wind is going to go which makes for a great schemer obviously you know yeah Um, a hard a a handy character uh handy character trait to have for sure yeah, like, and the thing is with him, so when he started out in his career, basically he became the, a bishop, okay? And he was, this was Ancien Regime France, Louis was still on the throne, and he became the bishop of Otan. Now, what I found funny with this guy was that he was kind of a pioneer of remote working. Because, like, <laughs> I know we're all about remote working and working from this home. This is a take home from the episode, is it? Ta- Talleyrand to, yeah. to, <laughs> to yeah, because, work from home. Yeah, because like he was the bishop of Otan, a, a, an area of France, but uh, he never visited Otan at all <laughs> in his life. Um, I don't actually. He did visit it when uh, many years later, I think. But at, when he was on the job, never visited it. Never fought it, t- found a need. He really only used it as a as a badge of a, a power and. Whilst the French uh, monarchy was still in power, he kind of acted as a church diplomat uh, to the French crown. So this guy, he goes through so many regimes. I haven't got enough fingers to count them, you know. Uh, But essentially, what he does is the revolution comes on and that changes everything. The, The French Revolution, 1789. And 
all of a sudden he goes from being a, a bishop of the church to basically abandoning the church completely. So this is his first big betrayal, you know, and mm. he actually it becomes a leading part of the revolution. He, he, um, he helps to draw up the legislation to confiscate and nationalize the French church. He actually, <laughs> as, as an excommunicated bishop, it didn't stop him uh, ordaining priests on behalf of the new French revolutionary government. Um, nice, and he even nice. in, his spare, and his, in his spare time, he even helped author the, uh, the Declaration of the Rights of Man. So like, wow. he's a seriously impressive dude, but you can't trust the fucker. Like he'll betray everyone as it becomes very, very. So we're talking about a guy. Evident. We're talking about a guy who's from very much, as you say, he's from the ancien regime. He's very much steeped in that tradition. He has one of those positions of power, but he smells. He smells change in the air, and he wastes no time in deciding which which side's going to win this thing. Basically, that's what. We're, yeah, that's and, what we're talking. And about. this is the the big thing with this guy. I would describe him as a great survivor. You know. And right. he seems to come up smelling roses all the time, you know, no matter what <laughs> he does. Um, but so basically he was eventually he fell foul of this new French revol revolutionary government. And like many others under Robespierre and all this, he was exiled. So for a few years, he went off to America. He went off to Britain and he kind of got mixed up in U.S. politics a little bit. So as you were kind as of referring did. to earlier. Yeah. and. But he eventually got was was allowed to come back to France, and he actually became the foreign minister of France. Now he was the French foreign minister four times. Okay, <laughs> so this not guy, bad. yeah, not like, bad it was a massive pension from the government. But we, whoever whoever paid it, you know, and he, but he wasn't long in the job before he organized what's called uh, the 18th Brumaire. Uh, 1799 coup d'etat so basically the coup d'etat that brought napoleon to power and overthrew oh, wow. what was called the the directorate you know um so napoleon was delighted with this guy because he's after scheming on behalf of him to overthrow the government and now napoleon is first consul of france um so basically uh, all but king in name at this stage you know um so, yeah, no, extremely interesting guy, but he did go on to kind of cause a lot of trouble because he remained as Napoleon's foreign minister for many years. And he, he even when Napoleon became the emperor, he transitioned to that role again. And he was immensely corrupt. He took massive bribes. It was he was famous for taking bribes. So at this time, France conquered most of Western Europe and yeah. He openly said, I will draw a line on the map to tell you which where your kingdom ends and begins, if depending on how much money you'll give me. So he took such massive bribes and he divided up all these little German principalities and all this and made an absolute fortune uh, out, out of his actual career, you know. Um, but at the same time, he got the job done and he kind of skillfully always was able to tr like double cross and trick the Prussians, the Russians, the British, the Austrians, anyone who was trying to like attack France at this time. He was really, really skilled at doing his job, you know? He, like he even advised Napoleon to not go back to war with Britain 
or and not invade Russia. And you know, he was fucking right on those two occasions. You know, yeah, both on both counts, especially the Russian one. You don't you don't want to invade Russia. That always goes badly. So uh, basically, his next big betrayal and probably his worst was he he was working as Napoleon's foreign minister and he started to sell state secrets, which is a bit of a dick move. So he started to sell to the Austrians and the Russians. Yeah. And like openly conspire against Napoleon. He once said to the Russian czar about Napoleon, the French are a civilized people. Their Their sovereign is not. So like really dropping horrible, horrible uh, shade on poor Napoleon, you know? (laughs) Um, And then when Napoleon basically found out about his betrayal, he summoned him to the palace and he said, why, you are nothing but a shit in silk stockings, which, you know, it was worth reading that book on Talleyrand just to read that quote. Just for that line, yeah, that's that's a good line, right? Yeah. Um, So he obviously been in went betrayed napoleon then he even like informed he even informed the allied army that was attacking paris that there was no siege preparations and to walk on in and conquer paris like this guy every (laughs) single time he betrays everyone and this time was no different so after napoleon is deposed he is part of the provisional government that sues for peace he continues on his role and is instrumental in a massive uh, conference which was basically uh, called to decide the future of France and uh, redraw its maps, Europe's maps after 1815. Mm. Um, and he was instrumental in the, in, in the Congress of Vienna and he managed to kind of get France a really, really good deal, you know? And yeah. from there, he got right in with the new government so napoleon was gone the bourbon kings were back he was right in there and continued on for many years <laughs> up until the, man, the, the man who conspired who conspired to overthrow the monarchy in the first place and then and then put napoleon on the throne is now back in the bourbon monarchy just as some guy yeah and he serves loyally for about 15 years under king louis philippe and basically what happens is he then decides to do another coup d'etat. Now, this man is in his 70s at this stage. You'd think he'd be sick of coup d'etat, you know? Uh, but he carries out another one and installs the king's brother on the throne. And uh, <laughs> then is finally the ambassador to the UK and slips off into the sunset, you know? But he never got... got he's, he's Like, karma seems to be bullshit because this guy never actually suffered for his crimes at all. He never really and, got caught for it. He sort of just got away with it all in the end, really. No, it, and it was sort of like his cleverness and he, his utter lack of a moral compass always seemed to make him come out on top. Um, like Napoleon, trying to, to sum up on him, I suppose, Napoleon said, I never knew anyone so entirely indifferent to right and wrong. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and when Napoleon... That's good, yeah, that's pretty good. And Napoleon, when he was in exile many years later, when he realized that Talleyrand had outwitted him and would probably die peacefully in his bed, surrounded by his loved ones, he said that, and and never play for his crimes, basically, he said that that was proof that there can be no God who meets out punishment. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, that's fairly damning. That's fairly damning. Yeah, it's Talleyrand, a great survivor. So he definitely had to make the list for me. I couldn't, I, I couldn't ignore him, you know. 
He's yeah, a, a giant that's, that's of European good. politics, you know. That's pretty good. What what did you say Napoleon called him? The king of European conversation. Yeah. That's Which is now good. your that's your official good. title, Mark. You know, <laughs> <for now> on. <laughs> well, I'll have to I'll have to stage a couple of coups for see if I can get away with it, you know. Yeah, yeah, no worry. I'd say I, you come up trumps. So it'll be all right. <laughs> maybe maybe one day. Well, from the um the uh the sublime to the to the uh probably the well not probably definitely the worst person on our list um the next kind of entry on our list is uh joseph goebbels um who we oh, um yeah it's fair to say we, we we had a hard time even even reading about this guy like he's one of these figures goebbels you sort of know him offhand but then when you start reading about him you realize he's even worse actually than you thought um so joseph goebbels is famous for being the minister of propaganda and hitler's number two basically um during the nazi regime in um germany uh, austria and much of uh, much of europe so goebbels was born in 1897 um and died via suicide in 1945 much like his um, his best friend slash political leader hitler um he's born in dusseldorf as a poor catholic um he's one of these kind of figures where you know, you, you see these people in history and you kind of think they've got these really humble beginnings and they're either going to be great, positive people or just absolute villains. And he, he definitely went the villain way. He, he was a very sickly uh, child, a sickly young man. He, he, he had a, he developed a kind of a, he had, he had a disability where he, um, he, he basically had a, had a problem um, producing um, vitamins and, and, and things like that. So it led empathy, to like, uh, empathy. <laughs> well, well, certainly that. But I think I think that's where it's this is where it's going to come from. Like he has this disability anyway, where he, where he 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 basically, in essence, he ends up with a, what they call a club foot. So as a young child, he has several surgeries trying to correct this situation. But he has to wear a metal brace on his legs for the rest of his life, and because of the the disability, he ends up with one leg considerably longer than the other, which gives him a limp for life. On top of that, he's he's a man who has who has a lot of lung infections and a lot of uh, a lot of just breathing difficulties his whole life. So he's a guy who's as about as far from athletic and as about as far it from sounds, the Superman. It sounds like uh, it sounds like Mother Nature was trying to do us all a favor and get rid of him before he could do any damage. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But I, I always just think it's it's interesting because they say these things about him and they say these things about Hitler not being a particularly good soldier, although you know running into danger being allegedly brave and stuff but these are supposed to be the supermen you know <laughs> these are the these are the yeah. master race <laughs> this fella can't get in the army um because he he basically is is just not uh he's just not physically able um but instead what he what he basically does is he, he opts for a life of um for academia he gets a phd in philosophy um but he, he's a man who who is just disturbed by other people's success and his his hatred for for other other people other people's success so it won't shock you to to hear that this man is a failed writer so he spends a lot of time banning books and oftentimes he's just picking books from writers who he's just jealous of because they're just better writers than he is which i think is an interesting parallel with hitler because they say he's a failed painter you know so you've two failed artistic people who just turned taking on, on yeah taking know. it all out on everyone else yeah yeah exactly true. yeah so you can Im- you can imagine this young um in uh, you know f- sort of physically feeble um guy who thinks he's an intellectual but can't quite make it in the in the world of intellectualism just boiling with rage at all times um 
So as you might imagine, th- this sort of fits in perfectly well with Hitler and, and the uh, the Nazi party. So he joins the Nazi party in 1924 and he starts writing propaganda for the party at that point, or really, really early on. Um, he actually writes some of the propaganda and some of the, the sort of the ads and some of the sort of campaign slogans that propel Hitler to the head of that party. So he's influential with, with Hitler really, really early on. Um, and when he, when he basically, uh, when they assume power, when the Nazis win the election, uh, Hitler immediately makes... Uh, makes Goebbels a minister. Now, this has given the guy meaning, sort of in his life. You know, he's sort of he sort of established him. So he's he's come from fairly little and and failed to make the impact that he feels he deserves to have made until he links up with Hitler, his best pal. So he becomes completely devoted to Hitler. There, um, I can't think of two people I'd less I'd less like to have a beer with. <laughs> yeah, they're they're they're, 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 possi- they're very probably the worst double act in history, like these two just sick individuals. But he, in his position as Minister for Propaganda, he's basically charged as with being the censor. And um, he goes about banning books and, you know, he's famous for, for, for burning books that are sort of, you know, he deems as unworthy and realistically what it is, it's books that are sort of against the Nazi ideology. Anything or any left, anything that's left wing, or anything like that. Anything even remotely left wing, yeah, you have to destroy it. You know, everything's got to be very, very right wing. He he obviously enjoys and revels in the authority that he's got under Hitler. Um, he he's particularly aggressive in in burning the Communist Manifesto, as you might imagine. But part of his role as well is that he's he's not just, it's not just books; he's control over all media. And this guy's a film buff, much like Hitler was yeah. himself allegedly. So what he does is basically he nationalizes the major film studios in Germany and he bans US movies. So he bans early Hollywood films, which are obviously sort of having a big impact on Western culture generally. They're all banned in Germany. But what they do is they make Nazi sort of remakes of of, uh, of these US movies with government money, with government backing. And then they're spread out all around Germany. And I think it's it's sort of a it's an interesting point because it's it's kind of I feel like it's not referenced enough. The impact, like cinema, was such a huge thing in the twenties. Like their new media, yeah, yeah, it have such a huge impact on them. You know, would be so convincing to them, and he knew that himself. In a way, Mark, and he knew this is how they'd get kids. This is how they'd get, you know, the uneducated. This is how they would convince educated people who are angry that they were right to be angry and that they could project their anger at the targets that these people deemed, you know, necessary. I suppose it kind of reminds you of in our own time, like how it took everyone a few years to kind of wake up to the dangers of social media and, you know, fake news and all Absolutely. that type of thing. And yeah, Goebbels and is just... Very much, the cinema was very much the Facebook of its day, you know. It just had an incredible uh, cultural sway that wasn't maybe as well understood by a lot of the populace as, as it would later become uh, understood. Um, and... Probably something else that some of these figures have in in common is uh this guy's a, a bit of a lech when it comes to women like you know he's he's yeah, really just yeah. just a sick disturbed kind of man and he would use his position of power to abuse abuse women left right and center as as you would as you would expect this kind of villainous uh, scumbag to do but he got so far involved in one of his one of his uh, affairs that he actually wanted to leave Germany and and just sort of just sort of leave and run away with with, with his uh, with his mistress to Japan of all places, um, but uh, Hitler wouldn't let him go because he said, uh, "This is the shame that you will bring on 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 us by leaving your your wife and your and your and your children." 
you know. Um, so he basically they had a massive falling out, Hitler and, and Goebbels, and and they they are they. I mean, this is in their in the late thirties, and and they apparently they had this like screaming match with these two. You know, savant idiots are screaming at each other in in a house kind of thing, and Hitler essentially banishes them. Um, and uh, thinking, how can he get his way back? It was way back into Hitler's good books. And the thing that gets him in is um, he essentially incites a mob riot against the Jews. And um, he then started making propaganda movies um, about the Jews, where he would film these alleged, you know, scenes from ghettos. And he said, oh, this is how the Jews want to live. And he would show all this. But of course, they were living like that because they were forced to live like that, obviously, you know. And um, So the basically the use of the other, the, the, hidden, the hidden enemy yes. within and all this type of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So to get us back, it was way back into Hitler's good books. He uses his great talent, which is to manipulate everyone, to control the media, manipulate people and just be as extreme in this as possible. So he creates these anti-Semites, uh, these horrific anti-Semite movies. And that, that wins... Hitler's favor back from you know so he was he was would he have uh, been involved in that film the famous one the triumph of the will the famous Nazi yeah. propaganda yeah. yeah would have been yeah. one of all, all works, of those yeah. all of those ones that you've you've heard about all of those kind of things you see clips of in you know Ken Burns documentaries that's all him that's all he's behind he's the money guy at least behind all of that kind of stuff he also insisted uh, as the Nazis often did that the actors who were in these movies often who didn't want to be in these movies but had to be he forced them to join the Nazi party and you know he, he basically was like oh, well, we'll pay you well for the, for doing this movie and I know you want to go in Hollywood and make movies in a free country but like it's this or we kill you so you know you, <laughs> it wasn't as if great, these great incentive scheme yeah <laughs> yeah, you know, it's like, well, you know, you star in my movie, which is about, you know, racism and, and horrific Ubermensch bullshit, or we murder your whole family. So there, those are your options. Um, you can try and run, but you won't get anywhere, and we'll still murder your whole family, and we'll still make you do a movie, you know. So this is the sort of thing he's doing. It's, it's as if so he's like a Harvey Weinstein, his, Weinstein on crack, you know, this guy, like, but he's working for the government. I suppose... What what kind of strikes me, Mark, is this guy, what makes him different from the, the likes of Rasputin or Talleyrand, they had power and influence over really important people. Whereas Goebbels, yeah, he had he was very close with Hitler and and, and, and all of the kind of leading Nazi party, but like it's more that his poisonous message he led it to manipulate whole populations of people. Exactly through the use yeah. of cinema and, and, and propaganda. This guy and all was that, so effective, which makes him far more dangerous. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And this guy was so effective at this that um, he was more or less the only person who was allowed to speak for Hitler. So sometimes he would turn up in Hitler's stead to events or to to you know to things to give to deliver speeches and and just just footage of him in the same way as footage of Hitler sort of delivering these like firebrand speeches just talking nonsense about this race or that race or you know whoever they're hating that week um and yeah look i mean he, he as a schemer he's always in the minds of an entire country you know so uh, for that level he's got to be in the top five schemers in european history yeah. and he and he might be in the top five worst people in european history <laughs> he's certainly he's certainly in with an argument for it anyway so yeah, yeah. we've got there's Joseph no shortage Jones. there's no shortage you know no, indeed not. No, no. And yeah. who was the last, Mark? You wanted to go back into kind of more ancient history. Now, was it? You were, you had, you had someone in mind. I was finding it hard. Yeah, yeah. So my my sort of my final pick is um, one that's uh, um, 
a little bit, a little bit maybe unexpected, but sort of my favourite from the list, and that is Agrippina the Younger. Now, this is not a woman who's maybe well known to you know average Joe on the streets. She's well known to um, people who've studied uh, Roman history um, or classics generally. Um, but uh, what one thing I will point out about her is that um, she is the woman, believe it or not, after whom there is a city in Germany named. Um, so the the city today we know as uh, Cologne is actually named oh, yeah. after this woman. So that so that's Cologne is short for Colonia Agrippina, right? So this is the colony of Ag- Agrippina. Agrippina. This, this woman, yeah. that's this woman. Okay, so who is she? She's the granddaughter of Augustus. So that's the first Roman emperor. But not just that, she's the sister of Caligula, who's the third Roman emperor. She's the wife and niece of Claudius, who's the fourth Roman emperor. And she's the mother of Nero, who's the fifth Roman emperor. So pretty uh, pretty embedded in, in the royal family. Mark, um, sounds like a spider in the middle of a web. Yes, very much so. This is one of these people, you know, we talk about the power behind the throne. She is so powerful at her at her height that she's not even behind the throne anymore. She is the throne. Like it's it's you know she's she's a just criminally underrated and un, under discussed figure in history. Largely, let's let's be brutally honest, probably because of her gender. But um, some of the things that she got up to, basically, let's let's I'll just give you <laughs> sort of a run through. She's um, she's um, it's alleged that uh, she um, murdered her her brother or was behind the murder of her brother. That's Caligula but also that she was behind the murder of her uncle slash husband, which is Claudius, uh, in order to position her son Nero on the throne. So we're talking about a woman who's the granddaughter of an emperor, who was the, bro- the sister of an emperor, who bumped off one emperor, married another one, and then bumped him off so that her son could become the emperor. Just pretty, pretty that, good goal to survive all of that. Pretty you know? good goal. Jesus, yeah. It's like a really so messed up game um, of Sims. Yeah, right. So she's the she's the daughter of this of this famous Roman general, this guy called Germanicus. Okay, and Germanicus was, was Germanicus uh, Caesar was a guy who was sort of, for all intents and purposes, was regarded as kind of this is the next guy. He's going to be the next emperor. But Germanicus dies um, when his daughter Agrippina is is she's about four or five. So she's sort of raised by her mother and her 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 grandmother and her and mother in law, um, and she's raised as part of the royal family, but sort of to the side you know she's not in the immediate family necessarily at this point um she in in, in 28 ad she uh she marries a guy called ahina barbus who's not really that important just on the basis that look he's a roman aristocrat he's he's a he's a wealthy guy um he doesn't live too long um but long enough to give her the son nero um in 37 ad basically skipping forward a little bit uh, she starts to come into prominence, and that's because her brother Caligula, the son of Germanicus, becomes the emperor. Now Caligula is the famous. You're you're well aware of. I believe he's a, sort of a not a favorite, but a guy that you're a bit fascinated by. Is it? Well, a, like a, he started a, a off. Lunatic. He started off really well, and then yeah, I don't know. After six months in the job, he just went insane, and people think he, he actually mental, right? did go insane. People think he had yeah. a mental illness, you know, and yeah, yeah, yeah. So. But uh, yeah, no, a uh, fascinating character. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the reason why um, I, I sort of bring that up as being important, not just because she was the, the sister of Caligula, but like Caligula was very, very close with with, with his sisters uh, Agrippina and the other sister Drusilla, and so close, in fact, that he, he he had them around him all the time. They were the people he trusted most. 
they it's alleged that they had sort of incestuous kind of relationships, certainly with Trusilla, if not Agrippina. Um, and maybe one of the reasons why Caligula went crazy was Drusilla dies in the year 38. And, and if it is true that he was sort of in love with his sister in this sort of weird incestuous relationship, then maybe it's the case that's, that helped drive him mad. There was a lot in, of that kind of stuff going on at that time in the noble, Roman noble families, you know? Yeah. Oh, indeed. And, and the, the, the insanity that Caligula sort of suffers or, or bestows upon the, the empires is dangerous for Agrippina. She's only really entrenched in the palace, in the court sort of structure for a year before he goes insane. And it's alleged that she's involved in an assassination plot, which on the basis of what she get up, gets up to later in life is, is eminently believable that she was. But in, in any case, she gets exiled and, and is, not, uh, is not murdered. But that doesn't last too long because in 41 AD, Caligula is killed. Um, and what happens is uh, the, the uncle, their uncle, a man called Claudius, comes into, comes into power and ascends to the throne and becomes the emperor. Now, this is a man who is probably quite famous from the, the novel and the, the BBC dramatization, I, Claudius. Um, yeah. He's not a guy who ever expected the throne. He's, a, he's, a, he's, a, he's really an academic at heart. He's a historian. He's not a guy who wants power. So sort of ideal for the power brokers in the court, you know, court intrigue to work its way around this guy. Um, I would argue, no, he, is, he wasn't the worst emperor at all, considering. You oh, know, definitely not. not no, one definitely of those. not, no. Yeah. He meant well. This is a, this fellow meant well and did good things. He, he managed to take over Britain as well. Yeah, he was he Indeed, was the emperor who took over Britain. Yeah. Indeed, at this time as well, Agrippina, of course, is a widow. Hina Barbus has died, so she marries another wealthy Roman uh, called Crispus, who um, conveniently also doesn't last very long. And as his widow, she inherits Ooh. just an obscene amount of money. Not only did um, she marry Crispus, but she also convinced Crispus to adopt her son by her first husband, Nero. So Nero now has inherited this guy's wealth, which in, a se- in essence means that she controls the money because Nero is still very, very young. Um, so she's, she's, she's had two husbands and has all of their money now. So she's, she's pretty wealthy. And also her uncle it, just happens to be the emperor. So it's pretty good going so far. Is there anybody noticing a pattern? Was there ever any uh, allegations saying, well, uh, maybe... Well, uh, here's the thing. <laughs> Here's the thing. Claudius's wife is a woman called Messalina. Now, Messalina also is Agrippina's cousin, but we won't get into that into too much detail. <laughs> Messalina, Messalina is the, is the father of Claudius's, or is the, sorry, the mother of Claudius's son, Britannicus. Okay, so Britannicus, for all intents and purposes, is, is the the sort of the heir apparent to the mm. to the throne. Okay, but Agrippina, she, she's not having that because she's got a perfectly good son herself. It could be maybe it could be emperor. She's just got to worm her way in. And what she basically starts doing is she starts convincing um, influential figures and political figures. Uh, she starts influencing them to tell Claudius that the best thing for him to do to end this rivalry that existed in the branches of the of the royal family was for him to marry his niece Agrippina, because that would that would sort of unify the Julio side and the Claudian side of the family, right? <laughs> now, just to keep, get this in context, it's not just an uncle marrying his niece. In Roman law, that's a real big no-no. Like that's yeah, not meant to do that. It's this yeah. sort of incestuous thing. It's really, it's 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 not cool. But they do. Come on, Claudius. Agri- yeah, you know, Ag- Agrippina's uh, influence is such that she convinces him to do it. So she marries her uncle. While she's on the way, her sister-in-law, Caligula's wife, is still alive. So she has her killed as well, just in case. You know, just in case there's some kind of a threat to her power. So. 
Uh, she shouldn't Paulina have gone walking so Austin. close to the edge of the cliff. Yeah, I, I told her not to drink of... that wine that, that close to the, the city walls, you know. So this, <laughs> this woman this woman dies. Anyway, um, so by 49 AD, Agrippina is in is well entrenched in power in the court and she starts bumping off rivals left, right and centre. Um, according to the uh, the historian Cassius Dio, he, he suggests Agrippina is pretty much in complete control of the royal court at this point and everyone is terrified of her. Um and she, this is the she, whole she Roman being, world, Mark, really. This is the entire so Roman Empire. Yeah, it's, power, it's yeah. the whole Emperor. Yeah, so she's the wife of the Emperor, but she's younger than the Emperor. She's wittier than the Empire. She's sharper than him. She's more dangerous than him. She has more ambition than he does. And essentially what ends up happening is she's actually running the Empire. And Claudius, in sort of starting to get to his dotage, probably is not interested, to be perfectly honest. He's kind of rather read and write his books, you know. Um, she starts being referred to as Augusta, they start building statues about her. Um, um, she's Always a good just sign. Coins minted, just coins minted with her face on them. Um, she's given what they call octoritas, which is just authority. So she receives foreign ambassadors. It's not the emperor, not the diplomats. Agrippina. So they come and speak to her, and they grovel in front of her. You know, and they, they bow down to her as you know, empress, empress. Um, she starts appointing the heads of the Praetorian Guard, which are the famous military unit that protect the the emperor so she has this huge huge amount of power purely through manipulation purely through just her ability to accrue wealth and power um she's essentially made herself the most powerful person in the world you might argue at this point um so in essence so where does it all go wrong where does it all go wrong Mark? so here's what happens she convinces claudius that he he should um in uh, adopt her son nero over his own son, his own biological son, Britannicus, <laughs> and against the wishes of a lot of you know prominent individuals, but none of them are as prominent as, as Agrippina. So Claudius agrees, and he adopts uh, Nero. Claudius dies uh, in fifty three AD, and Nero comes to power. Now, is there question marks still, over his death too, Mark? So it is alleged by some people that Agrippina killed Claudius as well by giving him some poison mushrooms. Now possibly true maybe she was getting impatient and she just wanted to get rid of him maybe she wanted to i don't know who, who knows maybe she wanted to put nero on the throne now rather than later um maybe they were just dodgy mushrooms maybe they were just yeah maybe he just died of something else you know you know the whole thing with a lot of this is like history is written by the victors you know maybe people later on didn't like agrippina for whatever reasons or wrote things about her that weren't true and history always loved uh the evil witch-like character in the background. oh of course yeah mm-hmm. especially in roman culture they love an evil woman not they in roman culture you know yeah uh, they like to demonize cleopatra and you know uh, you know and uh, they love that women kind of shouldn't have power yeah yeah. They hate, yeah yeah you know this is that's the that's the roman that's the, the you know the idiocy of the wrong the wrong way of thinking but yeah so she while nero becomes emperor nominally she's essentially the regent so she's the empress like so she's really really running the show where does it all go wrong well nero grows up and he gets more and more fed up with his mother's manipulation and he he starts to feel a little bit like it's really obvious that I'm not running the show and she is. So he, um, I'm a big boy start- now. <laughs> yeah. It's very much that like, and Nero, like he made no Caligula, but he's a bit of a clown as well. Like this fellow, you know, and he, and he, he's, he, he becomes sort of, a, 
obvious in his conniving. So he he has Britannicus <laughs> murdered. So he has Britannicus kit just poisoned because he's like, look, this is a rival to me, so I'll just bump him off. And as as his mother is still trying to run the show, he gets more and more annoyed with her. So he comes up with this hilarious scheme where he basically goes, oh, I bought you this boat, mother, um, and you should go and take it to the island there, you know, on your holidays kind of thing. But he's designed this boat, or he's had this boat designed so that it'll sink. So he's try- he basically tries to drown his own mother. But it goes horribly wrong. And the boat does sink, but she just swims back to shore. <laughs> so no, the why didn't tries I to, take tries to that? kill this woman. You know, it's just, it's, I just think it's the funniest thing ever. He, just, he goes through all this trouble designing a boat that will just purposely sink and kill her, but she just swims back. <laughs> so what ends up happening is one of his guards just goes, oh, for fuck's sake, he just pulls a sword out and kills her. You know, so really what happens is sort of her, 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 all of her scheming to put her son on the throne ends up being a mistake because her son is a clown and he's just this he's just this teenaged fool who gets upset because people are slagging him off because his mammy is too powerful and he has her killed. But yeah, Agrippina the Younger. So she's made my list because well, I, I think she, she, yeah, she's, over, she's overcome she's, she's overcome everything to become the most powerful person, certainly in the Western world in ancient times. And I think had she been a man, she she we might be talking about her as one of Rome's greatest emperors. So Agrippina, the, the younger. And who do we think out of all the five, Mark, who would you reckon would be the, the number one? Who would you push forward? So it's a sort of difficult one to say, because I was thinking about this in, in, along different lines. Um, and I, I tend to think of it along the lines of like, what did they have to overcome to achieve their kind of position of power? Um, with Talleyrand, we're, we're talking about a guy who came who came from the nobility. With Machiavelli, we're also talking about somebody who came from the nobility. That's also true Agrippina. of Agrippina, uh, um, but not true of of Goebbels, not true of Rasputin. Goebbels, I think, was just lucky that he that he was um, around at the time of Hitler. Well, I think Rasputin might be number one. And the Great Depression, of course, yeah. Um, I, I think, for me, I think Rasputin, it's it's between Rasputin and Agrippina for me because she has to overcome all the difficulties of, like, look, while she's part of the royal family, she's still a woman in, in, in the ancient Roman world, which is no small thing to overcome to gain that level of power. And it's the sort of power that no no woman really ever attains again in, in, in Roman history, um, to that extent, anyway. Um, and then Rasputin comes from absolutely nothing to essentially running the Russian Empire. So for, for me, it's between the two of them. Uh, and I think on, on balance, I might have to just, just, just about side with Rasputin just because of his, just the, the, you know, the legendary status that he has in, in world history. Well, this is it. Like I often, like it, for me, it's between Rasputin and uh, Talleyrand because although okay. it's more about because of what we picked, it's for schemers. Like the other people may have done greater deeds or anything like that but what i think with talleyrand is if you want a conniving kind of varies character from game of thrones Mm. you know one who survived all court intrigue and five regimes and still manages to die in his bed with the king of france holding his hand yeah, it's not bad. Survive. It's not bad. Yeah, like <laughs> that. He he seems to like he. People always thought he. This is the last betrayal, and he always seemed to come out on top. So just because most of the other ones died, I'd have to say that 
Talleyrand is the better schemer because okay. he managed to survive okay, yeah. into his 80s. Yeah, nobody, nobody bumps him off. Nobody bumps him off. That's fair. That's fair. But Rasputin okay. still has this, like you said, this kind of no one saw him coming and whatever yeah. mystical power he had or didn't have, it got him so far that, you know, it's also an incredible story. So I don't know. Yeah, I don't for know. me, it's for me with, with Rasputin, it's just it's sort of his position in Western culture. You know, everyone has heard the name, you know, and he's being portrayed in movies and TV shows and, you know, and there's always this kind of bizarre, so almost kind of horrible, evil druid kind of figure in the background, you know, the arch master manipulator. So, I think for me, Rasputin is probably just about edges like Rapina. Well, then I'll lean in and we'll we'll go with uh, Rasputin too. So we've decided that Rasputin is the greatest of the top five. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. That's our top five schemers. Um, Hope you enjoyed the show, everyone. And join us next time where we'll talk about top five something else. It could be anything from top five epic fails to top five pirates. Anyway, have a good evening. Flamboyant dictators. Flamboyant dictators definitely one we have to do, for sure. For sure. All right. Thanks a million, everyone. Bye. Bye.